So turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We finished chapter 11 last week and we're kicking off into chapter 12 this week. Have your Bibles open. You need those. It's like gonna, some of it's going to be up here, but I'm going to start with verse 28, chapter 11, verse 28, and we're going to go through verse 9. Then we'll, we'll pray and then we'll get to work. So if you would look with me, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, come to me. This is Jesus talking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I, that's Jesus talking, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He's saying if you come to him, to Jesus, you'll find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your your disciples are doing what isn't lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it wasn't lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And they were going to church anyway. Look at what verse 9 says. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we, we again come before you, your people. You are our Father. We are your children. And we ask you, Father, if you would just open our minds to understand what you're saying through your word. We pray your spirit would shine upon the text, upon the page, that you would open our hearts to receive by faith those precious and wonderful promises that you give us, Lord. And help us to obey to those things which are necessary for us to find rest in you. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, we struggle, Lord, every one of us, just to take a break, just to take a day off. And every single one of us in this room is always tempted to get a a head start, a jump start on the week ahead of us. And we always want to take more time to do more work when you are calling us to find rest in you. We pray you confront us with that this morning, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us just to choose the rest that you offer. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Christ bids all men, that's you and me, he bids all men to come to him. And he invites us to take his yoke upon us. Now, 
He starts off by saying, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. And then he offers this metaphor of taking his yoke, which is sort of a a whiplash in terms of the picture and in terms of the imagery. How is taking Christ's yoke upon us going to produce rest? And we talked about that at length for the last two weeks. As he's offering to you and me to come to him and find rest, the picture of the yoke clearly involves the idea of submission. That we have to submit our will to the Lord's will. Sooner or later, we have to just come to a place where we say, we're going to trust in what Christ is asking of us. We're going to trust in Him as our Lord. And in doing that, we'll find rest. Now, Matthew, I want you to step back out of the text for a second. Matthew, writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit, he has this profound invitation. Everyone here in this room, if you can hear my voice, this invitation is to all of us. If you will come to Jesus, you will find rest for your souls. For you and I, we live in a largely pagan culture. And I don't use that word to slam anyone around us, but we we don't go to church. We don't practice our faith. For the most part, this culture, Canadian culture, is pagan. And I mean that in the sense that we practice no religion whatsoever. We have no faith whatsoever. And Christ is saying, come to me to find rest. Matthew is not writing to a pagan culture. The audience of the book of Matthew, the the group of people that this gospel is primarily addressed to, are Jews. Now, unlike you and me, unlike Canadian society, this group of people, they're very religious, and they're very devout. And so Matthew, as he's writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Jesus makes this invitation, which is open to all of us today. Come to Jesus surrender your will to his and you'll find rest and immediately under the inspiration of the holy spirit matthew is then prompted to talk about the day of rest that the jews practiced and so there is a clear connection your bible has chapter 12 start of a new chapter you look at that and you're thinking okay on to the next thought but you need to understand there's a clear connection here between when jesus says Come to me and find rest. And now he is going to challenge the day of rest, which has been perverted and twisted and distorted by the Jews. It says in verse 1, at that time. So at the time of his teaching, come to me and find rest. Him and the boys are going to church. Verse 9 makes it real clear. He went on from there and he entered their synagogue. They're making their way to synagogue on the Sabbath. They're going to practice their religious devotion. They're following it all along just like they're supposed to. But here's the catch. On their way, the disciples, they're hungry. And so they're making their way through this field of grain. And they begin to pluck the heads of grain off of the stalks. And they begin to rub it, get the, get the chaff off of it, get the, the rest of the stalk off of it. And they're going to actually eat the grain. Now, the Pharisees are undoubtedly making their way to church as well. They're going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they see these guys doing this. And you need to understand, this is a big deal. When they ask the question, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful? You and I hear that, and we think, okay, um, so they're breaking some rules, you know, okay. 
it's not like in our day and age, if you're hurrying to get from point A to point B and you go five miles over the kilometer and your wife looks over and you says, why are you breaking the speed limit? You're like, oh, I'm trying to get where I need to go faster than I'm supposed to. You know, that's a, a relatively minor infraction. That's not on par with what the Pharisees are asking here. And, and there's a huge disconnect between our culture and their culture in terms of what's actually being stated here. I don't know about you, but on a Tuesday, I wake up, I have a staff meeting, first thing in the morning, guys come over, we communicate, we talk about what's going on in life, the church, upcoming events. That takes me till about noon, it's about a two-hour gig, eat lunch, in the afternoon I take care of administrative garbage that I don't like to do, but you know, you have to. Take care of administrative garbage, emails, phone calls, talking with financial partners in the states, etc. About three o'clock, I break it off. I start studying for Tuesday night life group, uh, Logan Lake life group. If I'm leading that particular evening, I review my notes, uh, make sure I'm prepared, ready to go. Four o'clock, my family and I sit down to a ridiculously early dinner because at five o'clock, we got to get in the car, drive out to Logan Lake. Six o'clock, we're there. Life group goes to like 9.30, 9, 9.30 or so. We leave, we come home, 10.30, put the kids to bed, and we go to bed. That's a Tuesday for me and my family. Well, they, they play during the day while I work, but that's basically a Tuesday, okay? Now, I don't know what your Tuesday looks like, but I want you to think about it for a second. What does Tuesday hold for you? You all have a calendar. You all have a schedule. Tuesday is a day unto itself. You do things on your Tuesday. Maybe there are things that need to happen on Wednesday. Maybe you take Tuesday to get ready for Wednesday, but you have certain things that you're going to do on a Tuesday. Stop and ask yourself the question, what does it even mean to refer to the day as a Tuesday? You see, the way that we live our lives here in 21st century Canada is Tuesday is a day unto itself. It's got its own name. It's Tuesday. And Wednesday's the same. It's, it's a day unto itself. If you're a fan of Survivor, Wednesday is Survivor Night. Oh, yeah, yeah, come on, you know, you know the chant, right? You're feeling it. Wednesday is a day unto itself. These guys, do you know what the name of their Tuesday is? We call it Tuesday, you know what the Jews call it? Yom Shishi. You know what Yom Shishi is? Day three. They don't name their days. I have a Tuesday, you have a Wednesday, you know, it's a day unto itself. In Jewish culture, there's only one day that has a proper name. Shabbat, also known as Yom Shavah, day seven. They don't call it Yom Shavah, day seven, they call it Shabbat, Sabbath. Now, I understand TRU students are having midterms this week, and undoubtedly, some of you here also at the workplace, you probably have projects and things coming due, you know, at some point, Wednesday, Tuesday, whatever. You have deadlines. I get that. And so you're working to prepare for the deadline. You understand that Jewish culture, there's one day that matters, really. And they have a proper name for that day, Shabbat, Sabbath. And every other day is just one day in a sequence leading to that day. Why else do you give it a number and not a proper name? 
See, a number is a mathematical term. It's a sequence. It's a designation that simply points to the fact that this is one period of time, one demarcation of time that leads to another demarcation, which these are all leading somewhere. So for the Jewish mindset, all days, all of them, days one through six, bow down in honor of the seventh day, which is the only day that has a proper name, Shabbat. You and I have vestiges of this in our own culture. Have you ever heard the expression hump day? Yeah, you all have. You're kind of chuckling. It's Wednesday. What does it mean to, be, to have hump day? Well, it's the middle of the week until what day? Saturday. The weekend. Hump day is that if I can just get over the top, then I'm coasting downhill into the weekend, right? That's what it is, right? A little engine that could just kind of plug over the top and then it's all downhill into the weekend. You guys know that our culture no longer reflects a traditional seven-day work week. Uh, Jewish culture did. Our culture does not. We don't go to church on Sunday. We don't, by far and large, our, our culture does not value weekend worship services. It used to, but not so much anymore. Their culture did. And the reason their culture did was because the Sabbath, day seven, was the day that they worshiped God. And this is an important event. When they ask Jesus, disciples are walking along, they pluck some grain, they are eating it, why do your guys do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're not asking a question along the lines of why are you guys breaking the speed limit? They're saying, oh my gosh, you just committed something deserving of the death penalty. The, the, the level of seriousness that they're placing on this goes way and above a minor infraction. You see, the reason why their days were ordered the whole purpose of it was because they understood that God was their creator and he had created them and as a result of him being God and them being the creatures, he had the right to organize and structure their lives. Where does this day Shabbat, this Sabbath day, where does it first occur? Genesis chapter 2. It's not after the fall. It's pre-fall. And in Genesis chapter 2, Scripture says this, and on the seventh day, Yom Shavah, proper name of the day, God finished. Now, the ESV renders it finished. The Hebrew verb there is the same root from which we get Shabbat. He finished. The ESV renders it finished. But this word Sabbath has at its basic meaning, it's a verbal root that means to cease, to stop. Modern Hebrew, in modern-day Israel, there's a modern Hebrew word, shavita. It means labor strike. So when everybody goes on a labor strike, they're, they're taking an extended Sabbath, so to speak, okay? And for whatever the purpose is for their labor strike, more, more money or better hours or what have you, they are taking that Sabbath, and they're just going to roll with it for a lot longer until they get whatever they want. The word literally means to labor strike, to cease, to stop your work. And the example for this comes not from Christ or God or anyone saying, you do this, 
In other words, Moses isn't the one setting the example here. It's above Moses. It goes straight to the heart and the character of God. You'll notice God is the one who is stopping. Genesis 2, it says, And on the seventh day, Yom Shavuot, God Sabbathed. He Sabbathed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God, now look at this, he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Hebrew word kadosh, and the Greek language we've got hagias, and the English language we've got holy. They all mean the same thing. It's, it's set apart. It's special. It's different than every other day. Now God, he doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't say, man, I really need to take a break. Go sip some Gatorade. God doesn't say that. He's God. He's omnipotent. Just a word, and universe is created. When he rests on the seventh day, He's communicating something about his heart and his character. And that's to be reflected in our lives. Jesus is walking to church. He's going to the Sabbath. He's going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. His disciples pluck some heads of grain. And you won't find anywhere in the Bible that plucking a head of grain on the Sabbath is wrong. There's no command against it. The Pharisees took this thing so seriously, worshiping God on the Sabbath, on the proper day designated for it, they took this thing so seriously that they had built this whole range of rules and regulations around it. They took it beyond what God had intended it. I'm not going to quote you. I could if I wanted to. I I found at least 30 some odd different regulations, and there are way more than that. I'll just quote you one. They had a rule on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk further than basically a kilometer, a a little bit less than a kilometer. There's a certain number of steps you could take, which what they're really saying is on the Sabbath, you can't walk further than a half a kilometer because you got to get back home. So if you live a little bit further than a half a kilometer from the synagogue, which many Jews did, and there's actual historical records of this, guess what that meant for you and your Sabbath worship service? You walk to the Sabbath, if it's further than a half a kilometer, you don't have enough space to get back home after worship. And there are numerous records of Jews who would stay at the synagogue after the worship services until sunset, which sunset's the start of a new day. And then they would walk home after sunset. It would technically be the next day, Sunday, at that point. So God forbid that you lived exactly half a kilometer because then you'd walk to church and you'd walk back and then hopefully you don't have to use the bathroom or anything like that because you've used up all your steps for that day. That's how seriously they took this thing. They ask him, why are you doing what is not lawful? And Christ's response here, he's going to address this three ways. There are three levels of law that we're speaking to. And I want you to see this because modern Orthodox Jewish scholars, they reject this because they have rejected Christ. Even evangelical scholars debate the significance of this, but I see it clearly here in what Christ is saying. There are three levels or layers of law within the Old Testament law. You have moral law, you have things that are clearly, fundamentally rooted in the character of God. Then you have ceremonial law. This is law that pertained to temple worship and the priests. This was law that was intended to teach the nation of Israel certain truths which would help them someday to be able to identify the Messiah, to be able to identify Christ. And then you had civil law. 
Now, when they say to Jesus, why are you guys doing what deserves the death penalty? Jesus is going to engage in a very interesting discussion in terms of the law, in terms of what constitutes breaking the law. The first example he references is from David and his merry men. You'll recall in 1 Samuel, Saul finds out that David is about to get, you know, the the throne. He's about to be given the throne by God. He doesn't like that, so he's off to kill David. David and his guys, they're on the run for their lives. It's a Saturday. They're hungry. They haven't eaten. They show up, and uh, it says in 1 Samuel that uh, they were hungry, and they asked the priest there, he said, you got anything to eat? And he says, all we have is the bread of the presence. Again, this is ceremonial law. That means that the bread of the presence, it's not lawful for anyone to eat this except the priests. It's ceremonial law, so it has prophetic implications. It's pointing forward to something. There's a connection between the bread of the presence and the fact that only priests could eat the bread of the presence and what we're doing today with communion. Any person in Christ becomes a priest with Christ. And bread, in the Old Testament, ceremonial law, demonstrates God's presence. One of the things we're doing when we partake of communion today is we're celebrating God's presence with us as his people, priests, because of the righteousness of Christ, we are now fully able to approach the throne, to approach the Holy of Holies. David eats it. He and his men, they snag it. Jesus' response to the Pharisees is, you guys are saying this is illegal, but I want to point something out to you. In the Old Testament, David clearly ate the bread of the presence. It wasn't lawful for him to eat it. Only the priests could eat it, and he ate it. Look at what he says here. He entered the house of God, verse 4, and he ate the bread of the presence, and Jesus is straight up, he's going to say it. He ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat. Jesus doesn't mince words. Is David guilty? Yes. Has David broken the law? Yes. Well, that doesn't bode well if you're one of the 12 hanging back with some grain in your hand. Like, whoa, wait a second. Where, where are you going with this? Like, you're not like trumping them like we thought you were. Jesus' statement is, you know, you guys are, are saying that what we're doing is wrong. David did what was wrong. He did what was wrong. Haven't you read that? Now, he finishes it off with a form of question. They venerated David. He's the great king. So, what he's doing is a rhetorical device here. If you're going to say that we're guilty, then David's guilty. If we're bad guys that deserve the death penalty, then shouldn't we rewrite the history books a little bit and say something a little bit different about David? Okay, if you're a Pharisee, this is a problem. Whoa, didn't see that coming. He's going to engage in an argument here that's going to go from the lesser to the greater. David's a common man. He eats the bread of the presence. He breaks ceremonial law. Now look at the next passage here, the next example, verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, day 7, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? In other words, you Pharisees, wait a second, haven't you read how you, your group, the priests, are also breaking the law? And if you're one of the 12 guys, you're like, oh, this is good. All right, I feel much better about where this is headed at this point. It, have you, you read how on the Sabbath, 
priests have to do work in terms of offering the sacrifices, in terms of killing the animals, slaughtering them, offering them up on the altar. Haven't you read about that? And in fact, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, they had to do twice as much on the Sabbath as they had to do any other day of the week. So it was actually more work for them on the Sabbath than any other day. And his point here is, haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, now look at the last expression, and are guiltless. They're guiltless. And then he's going to make the expression, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, I want you to follow me through here. When we have laws here in Canada, there are layers of laws, but they're very, very distinct. For example, here in Kamloops, we have city municipal bylaws, and they're binding on you if you, if you live within the city limits of Kamloops. A city of Kamloops bylaw isn't going to have any impact really on a guy who lives in Vancouver. You know, if we have a bylaw that says you can't do whatever with your garbage, that may not necessarily matter to people living in Vancouver. They may have a totally different bylaw. Their bylaw could be stricter than our bylaw. But then there's a province-wide sort of law. If you live in the province of British Columbia, you got to pay taxes and here's what you owe. That's going to apply to everyone in British Columbia. But again, people living in Alberta, that's not necessarily going to matter to them because they're in a totally different province. And yet, we also have nationwide laws that are binding all across Canada. So it doesn't matter where you live, those laws are going to apply to you. With Israel, their law isn't like that. There's a closer sort of intertwined aspect of their law. They have, like I said, ceremonial law, which governed the priests. They have civil law, which governed the day-to-day affairs of people in terms of how they live their lives. I'm going to give you an example of that. Um, in terms of ceremonial law, um, if you want to, Levi, throw up Leviticus 22. I'm just going to read you a portion of this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When one, any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering, his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable when anyone offers a sacrifice. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. Okay? And there are lengthy, detailed instructions. Now, who's that applicable to? It's ceremonial law. It pertains to temple worship. It is binding, if you'll notice, all across the whole nation. He says, anybody who's a part of the house of Israel or a sojourner. So, so it applies to everyone. That's ceremonial law. Now, look at Deuteronomy 22. We'll throw it up on the screen. This is an in- indication of civil law. It doesn't necessarily have to do with temple worship, but it has to do with how the people are supposed to govern their lives. It makes a statement, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. They had flat roofs. They often entertained on their roofs. And, you know, if you're up on your roof entertaining, you need to have a little railing going around it so nobody accidentally walks off backwards off of this thing and gets hurt. And it makes a statement, if someone gets hurt falling off the top of your house, well, you're responsible. You're responsible for the people in your home, including guests. And then it goes on, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole field be forfeited, blah, blah, blah. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together, because that would just be dumb. You shall not wear clothes of wool and linen mixed together. And all of you are about to say, what does that mean? I'm just telling you, you already know. We don't like polyester either, you know, it's not... uh, 
it's not fashionable. This is a fashion statement. No, I, I really have no idea. That I haven't really studied this passage in depth enough to give you an answer to that question. The, the point is this. You've got ceremonial law and you've got civil law. Jesus, talking about David, says, you know, he broke ceremonial law. It was okay. And the priests, when they work on the Sabbath, they're breaking civil law. And it's okay. The real problem here, in terms of how the Pharisees are interpreting the Bible, I should say misinterpreting it, is that they have not understood what the foundation for civil or ceremonial law is. There's a hierarchy. There's a layering. And one trumps all others and provides the foundation for all others. Jesus makes the statement in verse 6, sorry, verse 7, if you had known what this means. And he quotes Hosea and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Hosea, makes a profound statement to the people of Israel. He says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want things like compassion and love and kindness more than you showing up on the appointed day and offering the appointed sacrifice. And that's a quote from Hosea. What is that? Is that, is that a law? No, it's not actually. What that is, is God saying something to the nation of Israel about what his desire is, about what his heart is, what he wants. In other words, Jesus, as he's looking at the law, he says, in order for us to understand the law appropriately, in order for us to interpret what's going on here, we would need to understand the heart and the character of the one behind the law who gives the law. Jesus is going to make the profound implication through quoting Hosea, a prophet, and this isn't even a law anywhere, this is Minor Prophets, Old Testament. It gives us a picture into the heart of God, and it is the heart of God which is to define and govern how we look at the totality of the law. In other words, you've got ceremonial law and you've got civil law, but all that is based on the heart and the character of God, the moral law. In other words, there are going to be things that will always be evil, that will always be wrong, no matter what. No matter what culture you live in, no matter what society, no matter what time in history you live. For example, it is always wrong to murder in cold blood. Always. You will never, ever be permitted to murder in cold blood. Now, again, the scripture allows for things like war and self-defense. But in the Ten Commandments, which are a reflection of God's heart, he makes a statement, don't murder, period. I want to share something else with you really quick before we go any further. When it came to the civil law and the ceremonial law, if you didn't offer the correct sacrifices, there was a penalty. And when it came to civil law, if you broke civil law, there were penalties for that as well. And some of those penalties could be very severe. Like you could get the death penalty for not going to the Sabbath on Saturday. 
And if you murdered someone in cold blood, you could be stoned. You could be executed if you were found guilty. When you look at the moral heart of God, when you look at, say, the Ten Commandments, you ever notice how there's no penalties prescribed? For, for example, it says, you shall love Lord your God. You're not going to have any other gods. And if you do, you'll be stoned to death. Does it say that in the Ten Commandments? No. You're not to uh, build anything or carve anything that looks like me. No, no graven images. And if you do, you'll be stoned to death. Does it say that? says, you only get one God, that's me. Don't make anything that looks like me. You couldn't, even if you wanted to. Don't take my name in vain. These are things that reflect the heart and the character of God. And all ceremonial and civil law, which will attach penalties for violating that sort of thing, are built on it. But within the moral law of God, there's no absolute penalties prescribed. It's just speaking to the values in the heart and the character and the personality of God. Let me give you an example. In Numbers 15, watch this, okay? This is written at a time in which the nation of Israel, they've been given the Ten Commandments. They're wandering. It's wilderness wanderings, 40 years of wandering. and haven't gotten to the promised land. They sin. They disobey. God said, you're going to wander. All your original generation is going to die off. And then once your kids are old enough, then I'll take them in. Now look at this. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Oh, that's not good. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. Okay. Why? They put him in custody, notice this, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Did you catch that? They had the moral law. They had the Ten Commandments. They knew because commandment number four, you shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's clearly what commandment number four says. And number five says, honor your parents, which we all love that commandment, moms and dads. Yeah, we like that one. But number four said, don't break the Sabbath. He's breaking it. They had the moral law. You know what they didn't have just yet in its fullness, in its entirety? They didn't entirely have the ceremonial law. They didn't entirely have the civil law codified. Moses is writing these things during this time, during the wilderness wanderings. The scriptures are clear. They knew it was wrong. They didn't know what to do about it. And of course, this is a case study in terms of how we're to regard the holiest day of the week. God goes on to explain to them, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and they stoned him to death. Now that is the penalty that the Lord attached to breaking the moral law. Some of you guys are getting uneasy, like, okay, so what are you saying about me having to go to church every Sunday? Like, where is this headed? I hope I've given you enough clues along the way that you can put your mind at ease. The moral law doesn't have penalties attached. It doesn't matter whether you look at Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy. In in both instances in which the moral law are recorded, there's no, you die if you break this. 
But he goes on in terms of ceremonial and civil law, and he says to the nation of Israel at this time and at this point in history, if you break these things, you're, you're guilty of the death penalty. We know that if we break the moral law, we're guilty of the death penalty too. If we worship any other God, we know that we're sinners, and we know that as a result of our sin, we deserve to die. And yet, as God is recording for us the moral law, he doesn't see fit to put eternally binding consequences into something that reflects his eternal character because in Christ, he's going to pay the penalty for breaking the moral law. Let's just throw number four aside and look at all the rest of them. How many of us have in our hearts never hated someone, never wanted to murder someone? How many of us have never taken the Lord's name in vain? How many of us have worshiped God with our whole hearts, our whole soul, our whole mind, and never done anything different? We're all guilty of breaking the moral law, all of us. And yet as we look at this thing, isn't it wonderful that as God is giving us an expression of his heart, his character, there is no eternally binding death penalty attached to its violation. Jesus makes this statement. Um, when it comes to the moral law, David broke it because his life was on the line. Now, any, any good Jewish boy, you're taught, you've got to read this thing, and you've got to imagine all Jewish boys, they've got to come across the stories of David and his merry men breaking the Sabbath, and you've got to just know, they're wondering, well, why did God still bless him? Why, why did he still get to become king? He just broke one of the most important, most basic commandments, and it, there's nothing ever said about it. And he's never, there's no like punishment later on down the road that God dishes out. There's nothing like that. How does this work? Hmm, how are we to understand the heart of God? David's life and the lives of his men were in jeopardy. He was hungry. He was running for his life. You got Saul, who's breaking like all the commandments by trying to kill him, and he needs food. Which means that while it's a breach of ceremonial law to eat the bread, which is reserved specifically for the priests, it's not a violation of the heart of God. Because he loves life. He loves innocent men. He wants to preserve their lives. So in an instance where you need to preserve your life, yeah, ceremonial law, civil law, out the window. Because the heart of God is to save his life. The priests, they're the embodiment of the ceremonial law. And yet they do more work than anyone on the Sabbath. Why? Why are they doing that? They're offering up sacrifices on behalf of the nation of Israel to secure the favor and the blessing of God because no nation will long survive without his favor. And more than that, we need him for the ultimate sustenance of our lives. The priests are performing a ministry that is the foundation of sustaining human life, that is the basis of human life by teaching about God, reading the scriptures, bringing people into a saving relationship with the Father above. So it's no breach on the Sabbath for them to do that which is necessary for the sustaining of human life. And Christ makes this statement. You know, you got David, and we needed to save his life. And you got the priests, and they needed to work in order to save the lives of the people of the nation of Israel, bring them into a knowledge of God. And I just want you guys to know there's something greater than all of that standing right here in front of your face. 
and the basis of the interpretation comes from a statement about God regarding his heart. That's how we're able to pick apart the law. David served the people of Israel, priests served God in the temple, and I am the God who needs no temple. I am Jesus in the flesh. I am the Lord. And he makes a statement, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Time is getting away from us. We're going to look at this again next week. This is what I want to leave you with. A Sabbath is ordained to accomplish a very specific purpose. The Jews took it too far. Now, we read a story about this, Jesus re-clarifying, reinterpreting, correcting their erroneous interpretation. We see him putting it back in its proper place. And our tendency here, 21st century pagan Canada, is to say, yeah, you see, you see, they took it too far, you see, it's not that big of a deal. That's not what Jesus is saying either. If the Jews took it too far, our problem is that we don't take a Sabbath rest seriously enough. And as he is correcting them for taking it too far, we are wrong to use this passage as a justification for not taking it seriously at all. That is not his intention. Well, how do you know that? Look at verse 9. He went on from there, correcting their erroneous interpretation, and he entered the synagogue. This is the place. These are the people and he is the Lord that refreshes us, that sustains us, and that renews us. Church on a Sunday is a needed thing, not because of the law, but because of the way we were created. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This is before sin ever enters into the equation. What you need to know is that God has not designed you to work, work, work. And I have people tell me sometimes, I can just work all the time and it's not a problem. I'm just that kind of guy with that kind of work ethic. Work ethics are wonderful and there is nobility in work and all of us should find what the Lord has called us to do and do it with all our might. But at the end of the day, he has called us to recognize that we are creatures with limitations, that we are finite, that we grow weak, that we grow weary, and that our renewal happens through his worship. Bridge Baptist Church, we'll look at the flip side of this passage next week, but you cannot use this text to discount church participation because that is not what Jesus is doing in this text.
The day is meant to be a blessing, not a laborious chore. Let's bow for a word of prayer.